Hi, I'm Mark Weinstein. My guest today is a lawyer and a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Wilmer Hale, where he co-chairs the firm's security litigation and enforcement group. He is one of a few lawyers who has appeared and won at trial at all four tables, that being as a civil plaintiff, civil defendant, civil prosecutor, and a civil defendant. This means my guest today on the Cedarville Stories podcast, Matt Martins, is a gifted lawyer and communicator, an award-winning author with his recent book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, which was recognized by the Gospel Coalition as the best book in the first-time author category. We will talk about the book and what drove him to write it, as well as his career, which included the opportunity to clerk for a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Stay with me today, and I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Matt Martins, a 1993 graduate of Cedarville University and a graduate of the University of North Carolina School of Law and Dallas Theological Seminary. With that said, let me welcome Matt Martins to this week's podcast. Matt, welcome back to campus. It's great to have you back on the Cedarville campus. What's the purpose that brings you back today? I'm grateful to be back. Thank you for having me here. I'm actually going to be speaking this evening in an event hosted by the politics department about my recent book. And we'll talk about your recent book uh, later on the program. But I'm curious as an alum, I don't know when the last time you've been back on campus, but I, I assume it's changed. Even if you've been back five years ago, it's changed a little bit. So what's your impressions of the campus footprint and then maybe what you can glean from the campus culture? Well, in terms of the footprint, it's just dramatically different than what it was when I graduated now uh, almost 31 years ago. Uh, I was saying on the way over here that the library was like the cutting edge state-of-the-art building uh, when I was here as a student before, and they were just starting to move toward the engineering building. And now, you know, those buildings are decades old uh, and just some really phenomenal new facilities. I'm also very excited about the Panda Express, which as my kids know, is like one of my go-tos. Is it really? I would would, uh, have a real problem here with eating Panda Express like every meal. So before we um, really get into talking about your new book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, and your career, uh, I know you've talked in years past, I don't know how often, but you've talked with senior students who have come to D.C. for the D.C. semester uh, I'm curious what your perspective of maybe that D.C. semester program is, and do you see that as a, an advantage or a marketable difference that differentiates Cedarville's political science program from others that you may be aware of? Well, I, I do. I have had the chance to interact with the students that come to D.C. In fact, I just did that this past fall. Okay. I uh, spoke to them one weeknight evening mm-hmm. uh, about criminal justice. It seems like a phenomenal program. Uh, an amazing opportunity for folks to not only uh, be in the nation's capital, which is great, but also to actually work in various jobs in government on Capitol Hill, uh, get some taste of that, and do uh, begin doing what you need to do to work on Capitol Hill, which is start making connections, uh, get to know people, uh, networking in a way that'll lead, hopefully, for those who want to come back to jobs in the future. A number of those students, and, and maybe most of them, end up uh, attending my church. Oh, do they? Uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. And sure. so uh, I end up seeing them around uh, church during the semester as well. So that's really nice. Well, I, I remember when um, I wasn't here when Dr. Mark Kalis Smith started that program, but I have heard um, students say that the reason why they came to Cedarville was for the opportunity to study in D.C. And really, like what you said, it's all about making connections. It really is. Yeah. And so that's that's a unique opportunity to uh, 
you're not going to make those connections in Cedarville, and that's no. not a knock on that. It's just a this is a way to bridge that the fact that you're not studying full time in D.C., but you can start meeting people. I mean, if you spend a semester uh, on Capitol Hill, you're going to meet a lot of people. Right. Um, and uh, I would suspect that people have seen those turn into job opportunities. I mean, if you come to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, you're going to meet a ton of people who work on Capitol Hill. So uh, also an opportunity there. What a great opportunity for, for the students. So as an undergrad student here, Matt, uh, you pursued a degree in accounting. Right. So was that intentional because you thought that was a means to strengthen your potential career in law? I would say it was a hedge uh, in the <laughs> sense that uh, I knew law school was challenging and competitive, and I didn't have any family, even extended family, who were lawyers. So I didn't know what to expect if I was going to be able to get into law school, if I was going to be successful at law school. And I had taken an accounting class in high school, in my public high school, and I enjoyed it. And I thought, well, if law doesn't work out, okay. accounting seems great. I actually really enjoyed accounting as a major. I thought I found the theory of accounting uh, extraordinarily interesting. Not interesting enough to do it for a career, but uh, sure. very interesting to study. And I will say that the class I have used the most mm. in the practice of law, or the classes, were my year-long series of Statistics 1, Statistics 2, and Decision Analysis with Dr. Walker. Mm -hmm. uh, I use statistics all the time because we're constantly presenting um, or challenging statistical studies uh, right. that are introduced into evidence or might be introduced into evidence. And so I'm cross-examining some of the world's leading actuaries or statisticians armed with uh, three quarters at the time, not semesters, uh, of statistics and decision analysis. And it turns out I know enough to do that uh, based on that. So extraordinarily valuable classes. So I'm really glad I uh, majored in business. You took the, that class from Dr. Ron Walker. Mm -hmm. I was reading a news story that one of my student writers was working on, Sarah Mummert. She interviewed yeah. you. And she mentioned that what you learned in Dr. Walker's class helped you cross-examine some cases. Is there a story there that you could <laughs> share? I mean, there is a story. I, I cross-examined in a three-week jury trial uh, I cross-examined for seven hours a one of the world's leading actuarial scientists had, I think he had the most published or most cited article in the world um, on his particular niche of actuarial science. Um, and I caught him in cross-examination uh, making a false statement based on what I knew from undergraduate statistics about sample sizes <laughs> and standard deviations. And as a result, uh, I got him to admit on cross-examination that he had given, quote, certainly misleading testimony uh, on direct examination. And that was pretty much the end of the case uh, because he was their key witness. And so uh, I, I am not exaggerating when I say I learned enough in undergraduate statistics in Cedarville to, to hold my own against some of the world's leading statisticians in court. That's really impressive. And let me do a side note. So if you're a, a student looking to go to college and you're interested in accounting, you may want to look at Cedarville University because you never know what an agree, a degree in accounting can lead to for you. So uh, take Matt's advice there and, and maybe look at Cedarville. So we, we know that you've enjoyed a very successful career in law, which began after you graduated from the University of North Carolina School of Law, and you began working with a judge in the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, it seems like working in the D.C. Circuit Court is a great on-ramp to future careers in the Supreme Court, for, for that matter. How did the Lord orchestrate 
the opportunity for you to get into the D.C. Circuit Court? Well, it's interesting. The D.C. Circuit Court is, if not the most, certainly one of the most sought-after courts to have a clerkship after law school with a judge. And most of the time, those judges are hiring from, you know, the top two or three law schools, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago. Um, And I had gone to the University of North Carolina, which was a top 25 school, but um, was not historically a school that put people in clerkships at the D.C. Circuit. But two of the judges on the D.C. Circuit went to the University of North Carolina Law School. Uh, had, they, they were open to people from the University of North Carolina in a way that some of the other judges weren't. And uh, the judge who I ended up clerking for was also a believer okay. uh, uh, who had gone to the University of North Carolina Law School. He just retired uh, at age 80 uh, or late last year. Uh, so I interviewed with him. And uh, he offered me a job, so uh, it was a fantastic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Just a wonderful, wonderful man with amazing stories and amazing career, uh, and uh, great colleagues that that I clerked with. That speaks to again what we just spoke about a little bit ago, and that is relationships. Yeah, networking and relationships can open doors yep. when nothing else can. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's so it's probably true of life in general, but it's certainly true of DC. And so, just having that connection through the University of North Carolina got me a chance to interview, and uh, that led ultimately to a clerkship. So if our listeners are not aware, the D.C. Circuit Court has been a fertile ground for the development of future Supreme Court justices, including Chief Justice William Rehnquist, Antonin Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and current Chief Justice John Roberts, and current Justices Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh. That's really an impressive list of, of leaders there. What lessons did you learn from working in the Supreme Court for that one year with former Chief Justice William Rehnquist? Well, so as you mentioned, after I spent a year at the D.C. Circuit, then I spent a year at the Supreme Court and uh, clerking for Chief Justice Rehnquist. And what you get to do in those roles is uh, research and draft uh, opinions for the justices and then help them research and think about how they're going to decide the cases. So you're helping them before oral argument Um, You might do particular research on issues they're especially interested in, um, or you just might be discussion partners to talk through the cases. We would, if I was assigned a particular case, I would research and study the briefs, and then the chief would come into the office, into my office, and say, let's go for a walk. And we would literally walk around (laughs) outside of the courthouse on the sidewalks and talk about the case. No one recognized him. Uh, no one bothered us, uh, and we'd have discussions and debates about how the case should come out. Obviously, his opinion mattered, not mine, uh, but he wanted input, sort of different perspectives, pushback, uh, feedback based on the research. And then if uh, once the case was decided and the justices had voted how they were going to decide the case, one of the justices would be assigned to draft the opinion for the consideration of the other justices. And so if the chief had assigned the opinion to himself— and I was working on that case, then he would come back and say to me, here's the vote, um, here's the decision, here's the analysis that I think that we should follow. He would explain it at a high level, and then I would go draft an opinion, which he gave a two-week deadline on, and wow. he was very strict about. <laughs> and then he would give feedback, edits, some parts he might like, some parts he might not like. I'd do revisions, and then ultimately when he was satisfied with it, he would circulate it to the other justices. So you really got to see a high-level legal analysis on the most complicated issues that the courts face. You would see how justices and judges thought about those issues. 
You'd learn better how good your arguments were in discussing the case. You'd learn how to make better arguments. And you got a lot of feedback on your writing and research. So a very high-touch, high-intensive mentoring uh, yeah. for, those, for those years that I got to Clark. Is it fair to say that you felt like you had his ear and, and then when you would speak into some issues that he was actually listening? Oh, he was certainly listening, but I don't know. When you say had his ear, I mean, by that time, so I clerked for Rehnquist in 1997, 98. He had been on the court more than 25 years. He had himself clerked at the Supreme Court for Robert Jackson back in the mm -hmm. 50s. He had been the head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice uh, under President Nixon, which is the office that anal analyzes the most complicated issues the executive branch faces so I, I wouldn't say that Rehnquist needed anybody's help. He knew the law. Mm -hmm. um, he was an extremely capable and knowledgeable lawyer. He wanted people who would push back to challenge his views and to make sure he was thinking about it correctly. But when you say had his ear, I, I can't say that there was ever a time that I persuaded him to my view to the okay. extent that my view differed from his. Uh, I remember trying one time and after... <laughs> We got about 80% of the way around the courthouse out on the sidewalk. I remember him looking at me and very directly saying, Matt, I disagree. And that was my <laughs> signal to be, uh, to cut it. Uh, I had given it my best shot and he knew how he was going to come out and was unpersuaded by my argument. So he certainly you know, wanted the engagement and valued the engagement, but I don't think he was someone who was wringing his hands over these decisions as if he, he wasn't capable or very skilled at reasoning through them on his yeah. own. So I, I would think situations around the Supreme Court are closely guarded. You're not loose at sharing a lot of stories, I, I wouldn't expect, but it, do you have a favorite story that you could share that would give, how does the Supreme Court function that would be interesting for our listeners? Just back to what I was saying about how knowledgeable and skilled Rehnquist was. I mean, he was a very unassuming person personally. I mean, I don't think I ever saw him actually wear a suit. He would sort of be like a sport coat and khakis type of guy. Okay. He was very informal, laid back, unassuming, but an absolute genius. And just one example of that. I remember one time I was, I had been asked by him to draft the first draft of an opinion for him to consider. And we were in his office talking about the draft. And he was saying to me, I think we need a citation in this one part of it for a particular legal proposition that was extremely obscure. And I was kind of taking his direction to think like, okay, I need to go back and do this research. And he has a, a, on his wall in his office a copy of the books that have every decision ever by the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm. And he gets up from behind the desk and he walks over and he stares up at this shelf of books and he reaches up and he pulls one out and he flips it open and he hands it to me and he goes, this should work. And I look at it and I'm like, well, yeah, that's directly on point for an extremely obscure uh, proposition. I mean, he just had an unbelievable grasp and handle on what the Supreme Court had decided, having been at the court for 25 years, as I said, having worked at the Office of Legal Counsel, having been a clerk. He just had encyclopedic knowledge of their case law. And so yeah. it was just an extraordinary experience to work with somebody who knew the court's work that well. Being a, a lawyer yourself, working for a year as a clerk for the former chief justice, what, what skills are necessary for an effective lawyer? 
Well, I'd say one of the things is you need good judgment. Most of what I'm doing every day as a lawyer is not advising people on things where the law is clear. I'm mm-hmm. advising people on things where the law isn't clear. Like if the law was clear, you don't have to right. pay an expensive lawyer. Like Anybody right. can figure that out. The question is, what if you're facing a situation where that issue's never been decided and there's case law that's ambiguous, maybe case law from different jurisdictions going in different directions, arguments, policy arguments that could counsel in either direction, and you've got to exercise judgment about what someone should do, uh, what's the best thing to do, what's the wisest, most prudent uh, thing to do, consistent maybe with the company's business objectives or the person's political reputation or whatever the case may be. And so what you have to have is judgment and Some of that's just a product of experience, working with people before you who had good judgment, from whom you learned good judgment. The judgment is so much of what I'm doing every day is trying to give advice about what I think is the best thing to do in a world where the law is not clear. Yeah. I want to transition to uh, the recent book that you've written, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Why did you believe it was important for you to write this kind of book? Well, I was not an aspiring author. Uh, I had not had some lifelong ambition to write a book. I didn't have uh, some book squirreled away (laughs) and some draft that I had been working on or anything like that. It was really a function of what our country was facing to some degree beginning in 2014 with a lot of discussion and debate after Ferguson, Missouri, Mm -hmm. and then continuing through 2020 with George Floyd, just the enormous unrest and acrimony and debates and disputes and riots and protests. And so I had gone to seminary while I was practicing law. I had, at part-time, I had earned a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. And so some of my pastors actually thought that I could be helpful in bringing that theological training to bear on the legal issues surrounding the criminal justice system that our country was grappling with. And so it was really at the urging of uh, two men who had been my pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist, but who had since gone on to be pastors elsewhere, them urging me to to write something that they thought could be helpful to the dialogue uh, around mm-hmm. those topics. So that's why I took up the project. As you know, as we all know, America is highly divided. You can't... For real? <laughs> believe it or not. Late breaking news. Late right? breaking news. So do you sense that the Christian community is really interested in Christian reform of the criminal justice system? Well, I think that criminal justice is a topic that people tend to think they know something about. Maybe because they've watched Law and Order on TV. Perry Mason. Perry Mason or crimes discussed on the news. It's it's a topic that people, I think most people feel like they can, they have some grasp of and tend to have strong views on, ideological views on. Usually, And what I'm trying to suggest is that you might not understand how the system works as well as you think you do. It, may, it turns out that a few good men in law and order are not uh, accurate renditions of how the system okay. actually works. And then also, I think there hasn't been, I, I think, as I mentioned, criminal justice tends to be a topic where people bring their ideological views to bear, their political views to bear. And I don't know that folks have spent a lot of time asking, what does scripture say? Mm-hmm. What does Christian ethics say about how we should approach issues of criminal justice? And so I'm trying to address both of those issues, both 
uh, laying out a framework for thinking about criminal justice from a perspective of Christian ethics, and then also explaining to people how the system actually works in ways that I think many people find surprising. And then really posing the question, is that actual functioning of the system in alignment with Christian ethics? So when I think of what you just said in your book, I think of injustice in terms of people who have been wrongfully arrested and charged and incarcerated. I think of people who likely committed a crime and because we don't have room for them in jails or prisons, they're let go. How can criminal justice from those two aspects be reformed? Well, I think you're right to see it both ways. That What I argue in the book is that fundamentally, uh, given that our obligation is to love our neighbors as ourselves, as Jesus taught, (laughs) that loving our neighbors as ourselves most fundamentally means uh, judging cases accurately. And there's a number of Bible passages that speak about that in various ways, whether Genesis 18 or Romans 13 or Zechariah 7, passages that talk about stay far away from the false charge or render true judgments or when we're even when Romans 13 talks about punishing the evildoer, that means you have to distinguish the evildoer right. from the non-evildoer. And that you, you can have inaccuracy in both directions, as you noted. You can fail to punish someone who has committed a crime, or you could punish someone who has not committed a crime. And those are both forms of inaccuracy that are a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so what I try to uh, explain is, well, if our obligation is to, to judge accurately— what does that mean in terms of the practical functioning of a justice system? If, if, we, if we're committed to the notion as Christians that judging accurately is how we love our neighbors, what are the implications of that? Well, one of the implications, mm-hmm. just to take one, is due process right. because I don't have a time machine. I can't read minds. Uh, I, I'm not clairvoyant. And so the only way I can judge accurately an event that I did not observe and that happened in the past is by having some type of process to surface and to test the relevant evidence. And so for a Christian, a commitment to accuracy entails a commitment to due process. So that's just sort of one example of how I try to build out this framework to think about a justice system from a Christian perspective. Are you hopeful that in America, the criminal justice process system can be reformed and reflect more like like Christ? So I would say I'm hopeful that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I'm hopeful that he will set all wrongs right. Um, And in the meantime, I am committed to striving for a continual improvement of our justice system until that day Jesus comes. So we should, our hope is not in man-made justice. No. Uh, Man-made justice will fail us. Our hope as Christians is uh, in an eternal judgment that will be just. And as I have said in the course of talking about this book, every glimmer of justice now points us to that day when God will set all wrongs right, and every frustrating injustice now makes us long for that day. So as, as I mentioned in the introduction, that, that your book was uh, recognized by the Gospel Coalition as the best book for a first-time author. What's your hope that will come out of your book that uh, will make a difference? I guess what I hope is that uh, people read it and reconsider uh, the views they formed and whether they're truly either Christian uh, or even if they have a Christian framework, maybe reconsider that they did not understand the way the system actually functions. Um, and, if, and I think that's really what I'm, what I'm looking for people to do is to reconsider the views they formed 
because I'm concerned that the system as it currently operates is a system that people have more confidence in than it deserves. So as the book has been distributed and purchased, what kind of response are you seeing from people who read it? I guess the people who bothered to tell me their response are mostly positive. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while. I, I, it's funny. I get, I probably get an email or a letter or a, a message on Twitter or something on a, if not daily basis, every other day basis from people, some of whom I know, many of whom uh, I've never met before or heard of. Uh, I had one college student write me a 30-page uh, book report critiquing my book. Um <laughs> I would, I hate to break it to him if he's listening, but I did not read all 30 pages. I've had people who work in law enforcement write me expressing actually thanks that I've sort of elevated, uh, surfaced some issues that have made them uncomfortable in their roles. I've had people uh, express shock that they had no idea that that was how the system was operating and they're mm. concerned that they were trusting in a system that functions in that particular way, which is which is very uh, gratifying that people are willing to acknowledge that maybe the way they were thinking about it wasn't the way that it actually is. So I get lots of feedback on it. Every once in a while, someone bothers to tell me that they didn't like it, and that's okay too. I'm happy to consider the feedback. I don't consider the book infallible. When you wrote the book, was it written for a Christian community or, or the general public at large? So it was definitely written to Christians, um, as a Christian, I mean, it's very much written by a friend to a friend, sort of how I explain it. I'm not writing as an outside critic. I'm not writing as an antagonist to Christianity. Okay. I'm writing as a Christian myself, a conservative evangelical myself. Um, and so I'm writing as a friend, as a conservative evangelical to conservative evangelicals. But I've had many um, unbelievers, uh, people who have of no faith or of other faiths, uh, I've read the book and have commented to me on it. Okay, and it's, I had someone just recently write to me and say he's not a Christian, he doesn't believe, but he read the book and really enjoyed it. I've had friends who are Jewish read it, people of no faith at all. I, when I go out and speak, I, I've had atheists come to hear um, my talk about the book. So while it's definitely directed to Christians, uh, I've had the delightful opportunity to speak with people who don't share our faith. Do you have any uh, plans to write another book? I do actually. I'm actually writing another book, a follow-up, which is a, a narrative nonfiction. It's a, a biography of a man who was exonerated after 39 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. When does that book come out? Well, it's uh, it's only 2,000 words into writing. So uh, I've got it outlined and I've got about 2,000 words of the first chapter done, but uh, it'll probably take me another 18 months to write it. And how long did your book take for you to write? I wrote my first book end-to-end -end over 14 months with a four-month break while I was trying a case. So I stopped entirely for four, for four months. Okay. Um, so in effect, I wrote the entire book in 10 months. Okay. That's pretty quick. Yeah, it was supposed to be 65,000 words according to my contract, and I wrote 140,000. <laughs> That's the lawyer in you. Yeah. I still look back and say, I'm not sure how I wrote 140,000 words in, in 10 months, 14,000 words a month, 3,500 words a week. I mean... If you write, you know, that's 500 words a day, every day, if you were to stay at it, that's, that's a lot. Um, and I look back, kind of shocked myself that I did that, though I can assure you I was not consistently writing 500 words sure. every day. I was more like write in bursts. Yeah, write in bursts. 
Well, if, as you're listening, if you want to learn more about uh, Matt's book, I encourage you to pick it up at your local bookstore or Amazon or wherever you can find it. The book is called Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, written by Matt Martins. Also, if you're interested in studying criminal justice, I highly recommend that you look at Cedarville University's uh, CJ program. With the faculty that we have here on campus, you'd be well served to uh, consider what you can learn here at Cedarville University. So, Matt, that's the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you for joining me, and I wish you the best. And thanks for coming back to campus. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. I want to thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory. God's glory.